It's one of those things, if you spend any time uh, with RUF, um, you're bound to hear the word gospel. Uh, It's a word that we use, and it's a word that we use uh, quite a bit. And I imagine some of you are asking, well, what does that word mean? Uh, The word gospel itself means good news. Gospel is an announcement. It's an announcement of something that's been done for you. And when we use the word gospel here in RUF, what we're talking about is specifically the good news about Jesus. It's the good news that in the person of Jesus, God is reconciling the world to himself. God is uh, making sinners friends. Right? He's reconciling us to himself. It's the good news that because of Jesus, beautiful but broken people like you right, and like me can be made whole again. And our beautiful but broken world can be set to rights. This is very good news. Uh, and it's what we mean when we say the gospel. And it's worth noting that this gospel that we're talking about, the gospel about Jesus, it's not the only gospel uh, on the market. Uh, there are gospel messages everywhere. On your way to work, on your way to class, uh, as you are standing in line at the grocery store, uh, as you're staring into some screen, it just seems everywhere you look, everywhere you turn, uh, someone is hitting you with a gospel message. A message of what the good life is and how you get it. Uh, the solution to all of your problems. A friend of mine uh, named Luke, uh, he's a ca- campus minister, RUF campus minister at Northwestern, uh, he illustrates this well. He says that if we go to the local Barnes & Noble and, and we peruse the magazine rack, uh, there is a gospel message on the cover of just about every magazine. And following his lead, I wanted to start tonight with just a little exercise. I'm going to throw a couple magazines cover, a couple magazine covers uh, up on the screen, and I want you to tell me what the gospel message is. That's to say, according to the magazine, right, according to the magazine cover, uh, what's the secret to the good life? Or what do you need more? Uh, we'll start here. People magazine. Okay, what's the, what is the gospel message of this magazine cover? All right, yeah. The good life is is being attractive, right? Like being like Taylor Swift. What else? Like what do you need more or more of? You need more things, right? Shop. You need more stuff. Like that's the solution, right, to the good life. Anything else? What's that? (laughs) Yeah, right? Like better hair, better makeup. What do all three of these women have in common? Besides the fact that they're beautiful, they're all famous, right? Like, yeah, it's like fame, beauty, stuff, right? Like, this is the answer to the good life. Like, this is the gospel message of People Magazine. Let's go to the next one. What about this one? You got to be rich, right? Number one. Being number one. Yeah, business success, being wealthy, professional success. This is what you need in order to have the good life, right? What about the next one? Men's health. And I don't want to keep this one up too long because I don't want to, like... You have quite a word. What's the gospel of of Men's Health magazine? Having having great biceps, right? And washboard abs. Getting in shape, fitness, right? What else? Vanity. Sex, Right? Like, having all of these things is the answer, uh, right, to the good life. One more. This one's a little bit more uh, nuanced. 
What is the gospel message of uh, Outside Magazine? What do you need more of in order to have the good life? Vacations, experience. experience. Yeah, I, I heard both of those things, right? Like vacation, uh, experience. You all, that's that's great. There are gospel messages everywhere. Okay, we hear them all the time. We encounter them all the time. And to quote uh, Luke one last time, everybody is believing a gospel. You might believe the gospel about Jesus, you might not. But functionally, we are all living in light of some story that says this is the good life and this is how you get it. Okay, consciously or unconsciously, you are living out of a gospel narrative right now when you're here at UVM. Consciously or unconsciously, you're doing it. And what Jesus wants to do, like what he wants to get you to see, what he wants to get you to believe and what he wants you to get, uh, want, what he wants you to live out of is a, is the right gospel narrative, right? The tr- the true story. Uh, in tonight's story that Jesus tells, he introduces us to three gospel narratives, three answers to that question: What is the good life? How do I get it? Two of them are false, right? One of them is true. Well, let's turn our attention now uh, to tonight's story, uh, and let's listen, right, to the story that Jesus told. Uh, to the story, to the words that Jesus has to say. Um, It comes from Luke 15. Starting with verse 11. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he, the father, divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, uh, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, uh, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, 
You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for telling us this story. I pray now by your spirit you'd help us to understand what it is you want to impress upon us tonight. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that understands. I pray in your name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned to you, there are three gospel messages in the story. I don't know if you caught them all, but we'll go through them. All right, you'll hear them. Two of them false, one of them true. Okay, we could call these gospels the gospel of autonomy, uh, the gospel of perfection, and the gospel of grace. Okay, the gospel of autonomy, the gospel of, uh, of perfection, and the gospel of grace. Well, let's start here at the beginning with the gospel uh, of autonomy. Uh, Jesus starts um, the story with a father and two sons. Okay, in verse 11, the younger son says to his father, Father, give me the share uh, of property that is coming to me. In other words, give me my inheritance. It's worth sort of like slapping the pause button right here and asking a question like, what is the son really asking? At what point in time do you normally receive an inheritance? Father dies. Exactly, right? Typically, right, like a son or a daughter gets an inheritance uh, when his father dies. But the son is saying to his father, give it to me now. In other words, he's saying to his father, I hate you. I wish you were dead. And just give me my stuff. He has no interest in a relationship with the Father. He just wants his stuff. He just wants his resources. And it's a horrible thing to say. I can't imagine Willa, our daughter, saying that to me. Uh, it would be devastating. It would certainly break my heart. But the Father in this story obliges. And he says, okay, right, here you go. I won't make you stay. And the Father divides his property. And the son grabs it and goes. And he heads to a far-off country where, with no more rules and a whole lot of dough, right, he does what he wants, when he wants, and however he wants to do it. Right? Leaving home, like heading to a far-off country, no rules, no restriction, living on your daddy's dime, it kind of sounds like college, doesn't it? <laughs> kind of. For the most part, uh, that is what my experience was uh, at the University of Colorado uh, in Boulder. You know, when I turned 18, I wanted to leave home. I wanted to head off to a, a far-off country, right, the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. I wanted to start over. I wanted to live life on my own terms. And college for me was the epitome of freedom. It meant no rules. It meant no restrictions. And that no one to tell me no, no one to slow me down. Freedom, right? autonomy, and control. Right? The ability to choose my own adventure. The ability to choose my own identity. Right? The ability to choose my own destiny. The gospel of autonomy. And the gospel of autonomy, it promises you control. And I think that's what's so attractive about it. But the irony is the gospel of autonomy entails the loss of control. 
in a lot of ways, the loss of self-control. In college, the gospel of autonomy meant sex with strangers. It meant getting high a lot. It meant drinking five or six nights a week. So long as it felt good and so long as I could get away with it, I was down. And in a far-off country, whether that is CU Boulder or the University of Vermont or Champlain College, the son squanders his property and recklessly. But look at what happens. Look at verse 14. Eventually the money runs out. Eventually the bars close. And you wake up hungover and alone. Or you wake up high right, and dry. You've devoured everything there was to devour. And you're still not satisfied. Your appetite for life, which when you came to college, was so big, right? And now it seems so small. You're hungry and you long to eat what the pigs are eating because in some ways you've been acting like a pig and you've become like one. Nobody gives you anything and it dawns on you, you have a lot of drinking buddies, right? but you don't have any friends. You've got a lot of drinking buddies, but no friends. Nobody who really knows you and cares about you and loves you. And the reason why you don't have many friends is because you've surrounded yourself with people who are doing exactly the same thing that you've been doing. Looking out for number one. Not loving other people, just loving themselves. Living out of the same narrative that you've been living out of. Right? The gospel of autonomy. This brings us to verse 17. Okay, it turns out living the dream is actually living a nightmare. In the pigsty, this son comes to his senses. Like he hits rock bottom. And the gospel of autonomy is seen for what it is, right? It's lonely. It's selfish. It's short-sighted. And it's sad. But where does the son go from here? I mean, it's not like he has any couches, a friend's couches he can sleep on. So what does he do? Well, he goes home. And he goes back to the father that he rejected. There's no reason or there's no way uh, he'll accept me as a son, he reasons. Right? But maybe, right? just maybe, I can be treated like one of his slaves. That's what he thinks. And what follows uh, is the return of the prodigal son. Right? That's an amazing scene. Right? It's a scene that's been depicted in countless works of art. Has been a theme of many stories and many movies. I think it's important to note uh, at first what you don't see. Right? Notice first of all what doesn't happen. Right? The father doesn't see his son in the distance and sit on the porch. He doesn't stay seated. He doesn't snort. He doesn't cross his arms and tap his feet and shake his head. Like... This is going to be good. He doesn't do that. In fact, far like in fact, the exact opposite. As soon as the father sees his sons in the distance, he starts running, and he doesn't start running away from his son. He starts running towards him. 
but I want you to picture this, right? I want you to see this. And don't be shy. You can close your eyes if that helps. All right. Can you see, right, this rich, dignified man throwing all dignity out the window as he picks up his robes and starts running? Like, can you see his pasty white legs beneath the robe as he, like, lifts up his skirt? Can you see the tears, like, pouring down his face? Do you see the sweat, like, dripping in his, off his, uh, beating on his head and, and, like, dripping off his beard? Do you see his clothes covered in dirt and grime as he splashes from one puddle to the next, racing towards his son? He reaches him, and he wraps him up in his arms, and he kisses him. This incredible display of love, this incredible display of affection, right? It catches the son completely off guard. Like, this is not what he expected. It's not what he expected at all. He tries to get out this confession. He tries to get out the words that he rehearsed on that long walk home. But he can only squeeze out a sentence or two. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father cuts him off right there. Right? The son doesn't even get to the part about him becoming a slave or a servant. For you see in the father's eyes... This man is either a son or he's nothing at all. There is no other choice. There is no in-between. You're a son or nothing. And what does the father do? He shouts to his servants, bring the best robe. Hurry up. Do it quickly, right? Put it on him. Of course, the best robe in the house belongs to the dad. Put the family ring on his hand. Put some shoes on his feet. Kill the fattened calf because tonight we're throwing a party. We're going to get jiggy with it. (laughs) So he's an old Will Smith. But that's what they're doing, right? We're going to have a huge party. For this son of mine was dead, but is alive again. He was lost, but's found. And all of them come and they rejoice. And I'm not kidding. They rejoice at the best party the world has ever known. I mean, this is one of the most stirring uh, and moving pictures, I think, uh, of God's forgiveness for wayward sinners like you and me. But why does the Father do it? Like, did the Son do anything to deserve this? No. I mean, this is 100% pure, unadulterated, unfiltered grace. Ben Franklin uh, said that God helps those who help themselves. And Ben Franklin was wrong. God helps those who realize they can't help themselves. God helps those who are weak and wounded and who are sick and sore. I want you to realize, pay attention to how the son shows up as he meets his father. The son comes to his father half naked if not entirely naked. He is emaciated. There are no shoes on his feet. He is sore. The father does not forgive him because he cleaned up his act. The father doesn't forgive his son because the son pulled himself up by his bootstraps and made himself presentable to society again. 
Nor does the Father forgive the Son because the Son produced a perfect confession. In fact, the confession that he rehearses reveals that he still doesn't know who his Father is. He still doesn't get it. He doesn't know the greatness of his Father's heart. He thinks his Father's love is small, not big. At the very least, I can become a slave in his house. In fact, it's not until the son is forgiven by his father does he truly begin to understand the depths of his father's love. Right? It takes the forgiveness to show him just how great his father's love really is. The father forgives his son not for anything really that the son does, but because the father is good and gracious and compassionate. He's a good dad. He's the dad you've always wanted. This is your heavenly father in heaven. This is what he's like. You do not need to jump through hoops of fire to get him to forgive you. And you don't need to pay off a debt. You You don't need to make yourself presentable to society again. You just need to come to him and to come to him as you are. Right? All you need is a need need for grace you simply need to turn around and go home and on popular imagination this is where the story ends right but that's not how Jesus finishes this story, there's still more but the lost son comes home, he's forgiven and there's a feast that lasts, lasts forever, that's how we think that the story ends, but this is not the end of the story, remember right this is a story about two sons, not one two and this brings us to the second gospel in the story. All right. if, what, if the first gospel is the gospel of autonomy, all right, the second gospel is the gospel of perfection. The gospel of perfection. You know, in this story, the older brother is kind of cast uh, as the good one. But strangely, right, it's this brother who at the end of the story is on the outside while his younger brother is on the inside feasting with his father. What gives? Like, why is he out there and not in where all the warmth and laughter is? That's a good question. Well, the brother's obviously angry. He's angry because he's the one who's paying for this party, right? After the father divided the inheritance, then, like he gave the son, the younger son, his share. The rest was his, right? And now the father's spending out of his stuff, right, to throw this this brother of his a, a party. But that's not the only reason, or or maybe even the main reason, why he's so upset. The reason why the older brother is so upset is because he thinks this whole thing, this whole forgiveness thing, and celebrating the younger brother, it's unfair, right? He's the winner, the older brother, right? He's the winner. He's the one who did everything right. He's the one who kept all the rules. So why is this loser being celebrated? It's not fair. It doesn't make sense. You see, the brother, this older brother, has been living out of a particular gospel, one we would call the gospel of perfection. The gospel of perfection goes like this. The good life is being better than everybody else. That's what the good life is. The good life is all about winning. It's being the prettiest girl in the room. It's constantly comparing yourselves 
and stacking the odds in your favor so you always win. It's being perfect, or at least being perceived as perfect. And this is the way that the thinking goes. If I look perfect, if I live perfect, if I do everything perfect, I can avoid or minimize the painful feelings of shame, judgment, and blame. In other words, if I'm perfect, I can be happy. Then I will experience the good life. Brene Brown uh, is a sociologist uh, who lives in Houston, and she exposes the problem uh, with this line of thinking. She says, and I quote, Perfectionism is defeating and self-destructive simply because there's no such thing as being perfect. Perfection is an unattainable goal. Additionally, perfectionism is more about perception. We want to be perceived right, as perfect. Again, this is unattainable. There is no way to control perception, regardless of how much time and energy we spend trying. What Brene Brown is saying uh, is great, and I think it's super insightful, because she exposes that like the gospel of autonomy, the gospel of perfection has at its roots a desire for control. Desire to control people's perception of you. A desire to control people and a desire even to control God. You see, the younger brother, when he comes home, doesn't expect anything from God. And because he doesn't expect anything from his father, everything to him is a gift. The older brother, on the other hand, expects everything from his father. He thinks the father owes him something. And so when the father does what he does, celebrating with the younger brother, giving stuff away for free, it's, it's not just unfair. Like it's blowing up his entire worldview. It's completely rocking his world. And he refuses to join the festivities. And he would rather sulk outside. You see, there's not just one lost story in the story of the prodigal son, right? There are two lost sons. Like the younger brother... The older brother doesn't love his father. He just wants his stuff. The father for the older is also a means to an end. And both sons, did you notice, leave the father's house. And both times, the father leaves his house and meets the son on the outside and says, come home, come back. But when this story ends, one is in and the other is out. And it's not the one you would expect. It's not the slut or the pothead or the frat star who's on the outside. It's the kid who does everything right. It's the kid who thinks he's better than everybody else. Who doesn't see himself as a sinner. Who doesn't think he needs God's grace. That's the one on the outside. It's helpful to remember who Jesus is telling the story to, right? Jesus is addressing Pharisees and scribes who've been complaining, right, that Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors. And in this story, Jesus is trying to wake them up. Wake up. These guys are going to be in heaven before you, is what he's sort of saying. They're going to be in heaven before you because they need grace, and they know they need grace, but you don't think you need it. 
In other words, it's not your sins that are alienating you from the Father. It's your pride. It's your perfectionism. You see, all remember, all you need is need. Your problem is you don't think you need anything. All you need is need, but you don't think you need anything. You know, we need to die, you and I, to both, to either or both of these gospels, right? The gospel of autonomy or the gospel of perfection. Like, we all need to repent. As Tib Keller says, right, to p- repent of what you've done wrong. Right? Simply to repent of what you've done wrong is to become an older brother. To become a Christian, we must also repent of the reasons we've, done every, we've ever done anything right. And when you realize that the antidote to being bad is not just be good, you are on the brink of understanding the true gospel. You're like, well, what's that? Well, that's the third one, right? It's the gospel of grace. We've been talking tonight about the gospel, about the good life, about the whole life, life as it was meant to be lived. The solution to all of your problems, the the thing that you need most. It's not autonomy. It's not perfection. It's the gospel of grace. You need God's undeserved love. You need Jesus. You need Jesus and the love uh, and the forgiveness and the acceptance that only He can offer you. Yeah. I planned that. In his book, The Prodigal God, Keller points out that the real prodigal in this story is not the son. It's not the younger son. A prodigal is someone who spends recklessly and extravagantly. A prodigal is someone who gives everything away. He gives away everything he's got. A prodigal in the story really is the father. Far and away, he is the most generous with his resources. Like the father holds nothing back from his sons. He doesn't hold back his money. He doesn't hold back his life. He doesn't hold back his dignity. Like, whatever he has, he's willing to give to him. Like, willing to use it, to spend it, to exhaust it, in order that his lost sons might come inside and be with him. You all, God is offering the same thing to you. He's saying, come and be with me. You know, when we come to God with our arms full of good deeds... Right? Look at all that I have done. Look at all my perfection, my good works. Like With our arms full, we can't receive right, what God has to offer. But when we come to Him empty-handed, like when we come to Him needy, we can receive all He has to offer. Like There's room to receive it. We are never so bad that we are beyond the reach of God's grace but we are never so good that we are beyond our need of it. And I'll say that again because that's really important. We are never so bad that we are beyond the reach of God's grace, but we are never so good that we are beyond our need of it. See, God's love is big enough to cover every sin. 
He wants to embrace you. He wants to feast with you. And no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, he wants to be with you. And friends, this is good news. This is the best news. It's the good news that you and I need. And it's the good news that the Bible tells is for us in Jesus. Thanks, Peter. Let's pray.